This economic crisis is like a cancer. 18 to 24 year olds, there's only 54% of us that are actually working right now. There will always be economic factors that we can't control. Even shelling out the big bucks for a brand name school doesn't guarantee anything in a recession. Warning that the economy is very weak. And that the U.S. may already be in a double dip recession. What I would say to everybody is, get prepared. Get ready! Are you ready? No doubt! What you are about to hear is the unauthorized. Oh wait, I'm not even allowed to say that. Uncensored. Oh! Blink! Unfair Edge with Jonah Jones. Surprise. I got something that I gotta get off my chest today. I'm not pointing fingers or trying to pee on anybody for the position that they're in or make people feel bad. It's not what I'm trying to do right here. But I'm hearing a lot of these complaints, and I recognize these complaints because I once made them myself. Where you're in that position where it just feels like life isn't going to get any better than it is right now. And where it's at right now really sucks. So you feel like you're stuck, and nothing good is going to come in the future for you. But the irony of it is that the people that are making these complaints are 25 years old. They think that these were supposed to be the best years of their life. They're not. Best years of your life will come when you're 50. So today I want to put it very bluntly and just talk about seven ugly truths that will improve your life upon accepting them. There's no need to continue listening if your career is taken off and your life is just so awesome now that you look at things constantly positively. But to the rest of you, feeling like you're caught in a hole in your life that you just can't seem to get out of, this is specifically for you. Now start this out with an exercise. Everyone your age should be forced to do this. List off five impressive things that you can accomplish. Not things you have accomplished, like graduated college, because no one cares about that. Sorry to break it to you, no one cares. And not five cool things about yourself, because we're probably not as cool as we'd like to think. And here's a big catch. You can't list off any of the things that you are, like... Oh, I'm a genuinely nice person, or, oh, I'm a very blunt and honest person. You can't use any of those. You can only use the things you do, such as, yeah, I can cook a mean stir-fry, or I can play a guitar with my eyes closed. If you have trouble doing this, well, then you need to listen to me today, and you're probably going to hate what I have to say, but you still need to hear it. And believe me, I wish I heard something like this seven years ago. First thing, the world doesn't give a damn about you, only what it can get from you. Suppose for a minute, you're flying on a plane, first class, right up by the cockpit. And let's suppose the pilot and the captain come stumbling in, puking up blood, and fall on the floor to their deaths. The plane is now taking a nosedive at hundreds of miles an hour, and the guy sitting next to you jumps up and runs right to the controls. You follow him in and ask, are you a pilot? And he says, no. Then you say, but you know how to fly, right? You used to be like a gunner in the Air Force. I mean, you at least played a lot of flight simulation video games. But now the guy is irritated and tells you this. Look, buddy, I don't know who you're used to dealing with, but I'm a nice guy. I'm honest in all my affairs. I show up to work on time. I have a great relationship with my parents and lend money without question to all my friends without ever harassing them to pay me back. Obviously, after some confusion, you'd shout back, Well, how the hell does any of that crap matter? We're going down and we're all going to die. Now, do you know what the heck you're doing or not? And then he retorts, Well, why does that matter? What kind of self-centered jerk are you? My good qualities mean nothing to you? Did I mention that I always remember my anniversaries and important dates for me and my wife? 
uh, question you're presented with then is, with him being such a demonstrably good person, do technical skills you can benefit from really matter? Well, yes, they do. You grab him by the throat and shove him against the wall of the cockpit and say, with spit shooting out with each word, no, they don't mean a damn thing to me. Because as of right now, we need a pilot. Now get the hell out of here and find me someone that knows exactly what they're doing. And I'll tell you what, every single day of your life is like this. You are that guy, taking the wheel, despite not knowing what you're doing. And all the people on the plane are the rest of society. Here's the reason why society seems to reject you. Why can't you get any respect? Because society is composed of people that are in need of specific things. We need people with skills, not just qualities. We need homes to live in, food to eat, and clothes to wear. You were born into the cockpit with no training on how to fly. But they sure as heck expect you to. Your task from the moment you came into this world was to service the needs of others. So you have a choice. You can learn the skills needed to perform the tasks that will meet the needs of others. Or you can remain rejected. It's of no importance to others how kind or considerate or honest you are. I mean, Bill Clinton was a liar, but he could do the job. And that's why he stayed in the White House. Tom Cruise is a jerk, but he could do the job. And that's why he gets to keep making movies. Your computer repairman may be condescending to you because he tells you that you infected your computer with all those viruses by downloading pirated material illegally. But you'll still call him the next time you need it fixed because he can do the job. And this all sounds so cruel and material-minded. What about being loving and friendly? Doesn't that matter too? Well, yes, it does. But you should already be that way to begin with. Just being courteous and respectful isn't enough. Because that's an expectation people have of you by default. Think of the girl you're after, for example. Being sweet and in love with her isn't enough. She would expect that from every guy after her. What she wants is someone that has something more, like brains or muscles or mad cooking skills. And imagine having it all at once. The second thing is, the purpose of your feelings is only to control them. Picture this scene playing out with you. You say, I'm a nice guy. And the real world says, I don't care. Well, I'm a good parent. Yeah, well, we don't care. Well, that isn't very nice. And the real world says, yeah, neither are your looks. And you say, I have feelings here, you know. And the real world says, aw, you cry like a little bitch. It's brutal, rude, and narcissistic. And it's also exactly what the world thinks about you and your feelings. Having feelings really sucks sometimes, because when they get hurt, it really hurts. You can't think of anything else but the pain someone else inflicted upon them. While we're all born with feelings, what no one told us is that the reason we have them is so we always have something we're supposed to gain control over. Instead, most people will take the easier path of letting their feelings control them. Feelings are also a part of you that other people, wittingly or not, can control, unless you seize that from them. Consider this story. There once lived an old man who kept several different animals in cages. His grandson was especially interested in two tigers that shared a cage. The two were always in different moods. One was laying down all calm and cooled, while the other was violent, aggressive, and unpredictable. Do they ever fight? The boy asked his grandfather. Yes, they do, he replied. And when they do, that cage becomes a wreck that shakes and rolls all over the place. So who wins? His grandson asked, and the grandfather replied, Whichever one I feed the most. Those tigers, both of them, are you. So look at yourself in two parts, split down the center. There's one side that acts with animal instincts, and one side that is tasked with knowing better. 
when you widen your perception like this and see that your emotions and feelings are not you, just a part of you, it becomes easier to keep them in their proper cages. Third thing is, like it or not, your job is you. In Fight Club, there's a famous line by Tyler Durden where he says, you are not your job. And that line is often repeated as wisdom, often by people who suck at their job. And maybe I shouldn't say job, because I'm not referring to your source of income. I'm referring to your work. Whatever it is you do that is supposed to be an overall benefit to society, to this world, the entirety of what you are is the sum of your useful skills. And that is how your value is judged by others. Think about it. In the event of your death, your obituary won't say, Honest nice guy dies in car accident. It will say, Doctor dies in car accident. Or, Construction worker dies in car accident. Or, Insurance agent dies in car accident. Because that's how you'll be recognized by what you do. Doctors are given more recognition than webmasters. Plumbers are given more respect than unemployed millennials. When your toilet is clogged up, you don't go to Yelp looking for Mr. Andy Brown's number, even if that's the plumber's name. You're looking for the plumber's phone number. You may not like it. And frankly, I don't like the presumption of uselessness other people have about me before they see my resume. But the fact remains that people have their needs and assign value to the people whom they judge to be able to meet those needs. The deal is that you may want to be seen for who you are, but we are defined by what we put out, which is the result of who we are. Let's look at it like this, a less work-related example. There's a cute girl you're after again. She's a 19-year-old version of Katy Perry. Shaves her legs daily so they're always soft, beats herself up if she has anything other than a salad for lunch. She plans to be a teacher when she graduates, and she has no idea you exist. You love her, yes, but are resentful of the fact that you never get your chance with her. And what does that chance mean? A chance for her to know that you're the nicest, sweetest guy ever? You could just go up to her and say, I'm the nicest, sweetest guy out there. Well, she may say something graceful back to you, but what's really going on in her head is, oh, whoop-de-doo, like I haven't heard that before. And you could be like, no, I really am, I mean it, I'm a good listener too. And she'll be thinking, then listen to yourself. Is that the best you got? Because that's pathetic. So by this point, you're thinking, well, then what the hell do you want? The answer is more than the bare minimum. And when you hear that, you automatically think, oh, so you're one of those materialistic girls that wants a guy with a high-paying job making lots of money in a nice car. No! Your brain immediately jumps to that line of thinking because it's an easy way to excuse yourself from doing anything meaningfully impressive. It's easy to think they're all just shallow and selfish when they don't fall in love with you just because you're Mr. Nice and Sweet. What she was really asking is, what do you bring to the table? Do you have brains? Can you make her laugh? Are you talented enough to pick up a guitar and sing? Or creative enough to draw her naked with a pair of angel wings? How can you demonstrate what you got? What can you do? So what, you're ambitious? What have you done with that ambition of yours? Being a nice and sweet guy is the bare minimum needed to just not get shunned out of a girl's life. And it doesn't surpass the threshold to be memorable. Because the cute girl has guys being nice to her and sweet to her every 15 minutes. The plane is going down as we speak. Now, can you fly or not? And you might say, yeah, well, I'm not chauvinist or a racist or greedy or shallow or abusive like those other jerks that are bagging up all the babes around here. And what she's got to say to that is, really, all you can do is list off all the defects you don't have? Get out of the cockpit. And out goes you, and in comes a funny guy with a solid career. He isn't bad-looking at all, but most importantly, he knows how to fly. Because he can draw. 
or he can write poetry, or some other thing that the girl has a thing for. It's very heartbreaking, I know, to have that happen to you. Especially when you didn't even get your turn or your chance. Someone else was able to just kick down the door before you could even knock on it. But are you going to learn aviation now, or just sit around complaining about how girls only fall for jerks? Perhaps those jerks have something they can offer up. You say, yeah, but I'm a great listener. She's going to be like, oh, I feel so privileged now. I get someone who will sit here and shut up while I reveal my deepest, most intimate secrets as you're fantasizing about what my legs might feel like. And you say, well, I can remember everything you tell me. To that, she'll just say, yeah, well, guess what? There's another guy behind you that can do that, too, and he can play the guitar. Being Mr. Nice and Sweet is just like being a plumber that doesn't create more leaks than he fixes. It's expected. It's like being a book where the title on the cover is, this book has English words in it, and the subtitle says, and they're arranged in sentences. How about you give me a reason why I should read that? Fourth thing. This one's going to be harsh. But the fourth thing is, you might have a good reason to hate yourself. Because you might be sitting there saying, so I have to figure out how to get girls to like me? No! That's not the point, to get them to like you. The point is to start making yourself the kind of person they like. We always see an obstacle as something that we need to just get past without allowing it to transform us. Like, we think, how do I get the job? Or, how do I get the girl? Instead of, how do I become the person that employers want? Or, how do I become the person that girls can't resist? It's harder when you think about it in that way, because... It means you might have to drop some hobbies. There goes my tabletop D&D night. And probably have to focus more on your appearance. There goes my Star Trek t-shirts. And there are even some parts of your personality you may even have to change. And you might sit there and think, why can't there just be someone that likes me for me? And the reason why is because society is made up of people that all need things. The plane is going down and all you can do is think, man, why haven't we invented planes that can fly themselves yet? If you don't feel like you're good at anything, well, you don't have to be from the outset. Put enough hours of repetitive practice into it, and you can get good at it. Let me give you two examples of that. First one, in high school, I was the worst writer in the world. Just ask my English teacher. So I wrote in every little smidgen of spare time that I could find until I got better. My first book was the worst one that was ever submitted to the Kindle store. So I took it down and rewrote it along with three other books since, and now my name in the Kindle store isn't Mud. Personally, I don't think I'm as good as I can be, but I'm comforted by the fact that I'm getting better at it with each passing day. Second thing, I wanted to impress my dream girl. She has brown eyes. And there's this Van Morrison song, Brown Eyed Girl. I figured if I played that on my acoustic guitar for her and sung it, she'd eat that right up. At first, I found the melody and rhythm too confusing to learn, but I stuck at it. I broke the chords down into tabs, then practiced over and over again, just the rhythm. After I got the instrumentals down, I practiced doing the vocals along with it. I memorized the lyrics by their synchronization with the corresponding guitar strokes. After weeks of this, I put on the show for her and made her cry like a brown-eyed girl at an actual Van Morrison concert. What I'm trying to say here is when I hated myself, I had a good reason to. It wasn't for my tragically low self-esteem. It wasn't because I was bullied. It was because I didn't do a damn thing to make me love myself. Not even I could love me for me. I didn't make or produce anything of value to others, so they didn't value me either. So, make another list. How many things do you consume that other people made? Whether it be TV, music, video games, or blogs. Now, how many comparable things do you make on your own? Only one of these lists will be used in determining your value to society. The fifth thing. No one, and nothing, 
will fix you. I spent years in the misery of loneliness thinking, if I just had her, everything would be alright. For three years after graduating college, I was single. I tried finding someone. I put out the most sincere efforts in my pursuits for the special one, whose name and face changed after each rejection. But let's suppose one of them said yes. Would they really be the perfect fit? Obviously not, because they all said no. Since they were lacking the heart to recognize my sincere efforts, would I really want them to begin with, or would I still want them years later? This all led to nowhere but anguish because I was searching for something that doesn't exist, someone to fix me, save me, or complete me. That one person or thing you need for your joy to come to fruition is never the solution. When the hole is where the heart is, no one can fill the void, because the void was there long before you recognized its existence. Feeling you need someone or something in particular to fill it is nothing more than the defense mechanism of denial in your own mind. It's telling yourself, there's nothing I need to change about myself, I just need them. So the emptiness is left unresolved, and we fail to realize that this emptiness is what drives everyone else away. Because would you want to be the answer to someone else's neediness? Do you seek out or avoid high-maintenance people? Can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying, You'll carry the burden of all that's wrong in my life by giving me all that I'm missing. It's the equivalent of someone telling you they need you to wipe their butt with. Just as there's never a right person, there's also never a right time. There's never the perfect opportunity or big break. At least not while you're actively seeking it. Remember, your craving for such a thing is the reek of desperation. And that's what drives it all away. And this craving is only an excuse. It's a deflection from the real problem. Some guys might be saying, oh, if I had a great girlfriend, I wouldn't be looking at porn. Or they'd be saying, if I made more money, I'd manage it better. If my life weren't so crappy, I'd stop drinking or smoking or using. This is all throwing fuel on the fire when water is what's called for. Now, fire is a far greater spectacle than smoke, thus the urge to keep the fire going, to keep the shallow desires of the mind satisfied, is far easier than it is to reach in deep and attack the real problem that all of these are symptoms of. Which brings me to say this, the sixth thing. What's on the inside only matters for what it makes on the outside. You might be sitting there listening and thinking, you're such a cruel and ferocious jerk, Mr. Jones, telling people that they may have a good reason to hate themselves, but for what? Because they don't do what you do? Isn't it what's on the inside that matters? Now, I did not say it's because they do not do what I do. I said it's because they don't do anything. The times I was most disgusted with myself were the days when I got nothing accomplished. But let's take, for example, the business I'm in. I'm a writer. I know a lot of good souls out there that want to be writers and even call themselves such. They put it on their resumes, LinkedIn profiles, and introduce themselves as writers. Deep down, even I know in their soul is the overwhelming urge to express their thoughts and feelings through the pen. But there's one problem. They haven't written a word. Does that matter? Is that the only thing that separates the wannabes from the true writers? What they're yearning to do in their soul doesn't count for anything? I mean, if they just had an opportunity to sit down and write, they would. How big of a deal is it? It's a big fat deal! The easy, instant reaction to every harsh phrase I've said here is, but it's what's on the inside that matters. You may even catch yourself telling yourself, well, I know I'm a good person on the inside, and that's all that matters. Others will see it if I just be true to who I am. I had an argument with a female friend of mine who was struggling to find a good man. 
She didn't like the fact that all the men she dated didn't seem to fit. So I told her, you know, in a relationship, there has to be sacrifices. And sometimes those sacrifices are pieces of who you are. And she just snapped right back at me. No, never. I'm just going to be myself and wait for someone to come around that will love me for who I am. And as that line of thinking dominated her mind, she paid less attention to things that would actually attract and retain a man, such as her appearance, ability to control emotions, and converse in the non-cryptic manner that men appreciate. Because all that mattered to her was what's on the inside. This is all true, but it's not the whole truth. What you are on the inside leaks out into everything you do. The problem is that no one can see what you are on the inside. They can only see what it produces. When I write a book or a blog post, I write it because these words, opinions, and philosophies were ricocheting on my inside. But how would anyone know these thoughts and feelings of mine if I kept them bottled up? No one could know my inside until I put its energy into the creation of something. The guy that pens a symphony from scratch does so because he hears the music over and over again inside his head. The girl that paints a masterpiece does so because the image she wants to create is all she sees when she closes her eyes. Every good thing you ever did in your life was the result of the urges to do them bubbling over inside you. Likewise, every bad thing you ever did was the result from the inner urges as well. Who you are inwardly only matters to everyone else if they can measure it by what it produces outwardly. Trees are not judged by their roots, but by their branches. Nobody cares about your roots, only how big your branches are, how scenic your leaves make you, or how succulent your fruits are. All that you keep bottled up will mean nothing to no one until you use it to create something for others. And yes, you must create. You care about the poor, or the suffering, or injustice? Well, I'm sure the victims are comforted by your feelings. But what have you done? Hashtag activism? Like a little post on Twitter followed by hashtag bring back our girls or hashtag bring back our boys or any other piss poor half-ass stop the tragedy hashtag post noise. That will do nothing for no one other than supposedly make you feel better. And if it does make you feel better, that raises serious questions about your character. It's like saying, oh, I know you poor victims are suffering, so I'll post this on my wall then go back to my privileged life. Did my deed for the day. Why don't you just add insult to injustice? You really care about these people? You really care about the suffering? Then how about you find out what these victims need and provide it? Don't have anything? Fine. Get on fundanything.com and start a campaign to raise money for those things. If you sincerely feel so passionately about the issue, you should be able to make the case well enough for others to part with their money over it. Rabbi used to ask me something every week that my answer was never good enough for. He would ask me, What did you do this week that a Gentile cannot? Why should I call you by your Hebrew name when you do nothing that those with normal names can't do? And saying I'm a good person on the inside would never slide with him. Going back to the whole romance thing, how often do you feel like this? Where you say, this person I want would want me too if they only knew me. If they only got a good glimpse of my personality and how interesting I am. Really now, let me put you on the spot then. What are three things about you they don't know, but if they did, would make them want you? How does your awesome and interesting personality translate to the physical real world? What does it make you do? What value is it to others? So start something to show them right away. There's only one last obstacle beyond this point. The seventh thing. Only one part of you really wants to improve, and it's greatly outnumbered. 
You see, the mind is quite the freak of nature, simultaneously the source of your greatest strength and your greatest weakness. This is best on display the moment you realize a change is necessary, because then the internal cockroaches awaken and shoot down every action for improvement you even think about, giving you an excuse not to do it, and often those excuses are powerfully convincing. It will feel like everything within you is fighting improvement. This is made possible by the fact that your mind is not programmed with the purpose of making you happy or smart or healthy or rich or even just a little better off. The only programming it has is for survival. The only craving it carries is comfort. It's like a drug. It will latch onto it and only intense treatment will break it away as any addict can testify. You'll say things to yourself, if I do change, the people pressuring me to do so will think they've won. Or, to think I need improvement is to admit inferiority. Or, this is who I am, I can't hide from myself. Or, when good things happen to me, good changes will happen. Till then, I'm getting nothing but bad. Before I make my larger point, let me knock down each one of these excuses one by one. First, people are pressuring you to change. I've said before, most people won't care, one way or another. The world, it's judgmental, yes, but those judgments, they don't go down in like a record book that each person has. They make a judgment about you, they forget about it 15 minutes later. The ones pressuring you to change are among the few people that do really care. Would they really go out of their way to guilt you into a major improvement, only to add a tally to their scoreboard? If they're applying pressure, they're beyond the point of keeping score. Second, about inferiority. You mean to tell me that you're perfect, and everything in your life is perfect? Even if it's awesome, something is bugging you, because it compelled you to listen this far in. The third and fourth really go together right here. You are not the result of what happens to you. You are not who you think and feel you are. You are only who you choose to be. And that speaks to my larger point. Your mind is not you. It's only part of you. And its part is to protect and preserve. It evaluates things not on their value, but primarily on just their convenience, and nothing more. In its vain attempts to protect you, it feeds you more garbage, all of which is easy to adhere, because it sure is convenient. It will deliberately misinterpret any criticism as a personal attack on you, like a pathetic politician in debates, claiming any criticism of their policies or philosophies is a ruthless attack on their character. You can hear it now. Well, who's this jerk to call me pitiful and point out my faults? Mr. Perfect? I bet he's got an extreme inferiority complex and wrote this whole thing just to make everyone else feel as miserable as him. Right, because increasing the misery of others somehow detracts from mine. And the goal is so worthy to spend so many hours working on and writing toward. It will deny attention to the message by giving it to the messenger. The content of the message is also lost by focusing entirely on the tone with which it is delivered. It will make you rationalize all you can't stand. Soon you hear yourself saying, Ah, oh, things aren't that bad. It's all too easy to look at the past through rose-colored glasses. How often do you dwell on previous depressions or rejections, and even suicide attempts when reminiscing of the good old days? And when looking forward, we're no better. It's just as easy to say, If I just keep doing the things I'm doing, I'll get my break. If I keep withdrawing 500 bucks from the ugly teller, then deposit it the next day to the cute teller, she'll think I'm rolling in dough within a few weeks. After that, I'll have the nerve to do more than small talk with her. It will fool you into thinking that happiness is not something you really want. Because happiness takes effort. And who wants to put that out? That means you'll have to get up off your butt, 
all real lasting happiness is earned. To earn, something must be created. And it's so much easier not to bother because when you don't, no one can trash what you created. But do you find even a smidgen of joy from being that jerk that trashes what others creates? You hear yourself say, this movie sucks, or this song is annoying, or this famous person or politician or actor or singer is a total waste of space, or that couple's kids is a mess, or perhaps you're saying, this author is pretentious and he's pompous. How long does the satisfaction last from saying that? You see, it's easier to trash somebody else's creation than to come up with your own creation. And as they trash someone else's creation, what they're really saying is, stop creating, because it reminds them that they've created nothing. We do it even to ourselves. We all know too well that whatever we create, no matter how good or bad it is, there's always going to be a good portion of jerks out there that will just pee all over it. It's no different from when your single friends don't want you to get married because it reminds them of their loneliness. Or if you dropped out of high school with your friends, they don't want you to go get your GED and work towards college. Even worse, drinking buddies don't want you to sober up because you'll be a reminder to them about the things they despise in themselves. But that's all you have to remember. Every entrepreneur feels this when they're called crazy for wanting to start a business. The warnings they're given might even be dished out with the best of intentions. But the reason they're given is because the critic is afraid to do the same thing themselves. They think they'd fail if they tried. So if their great and almighty ass can't do it, surely neither can you. The funny thing I always hear, even a few times for myself, was... If I only had this much money, or this much time, this much resources, I could produce the best book, website, music, whatever. But those things you need to do it never come around, so nothing gets done. But the thing remains perfect in your mind, because it hasn't taken any criticism due to its lack of existence. What's funnier is that it's never been easier to produce that thing than it is now. No matter how big the dream is, there is a way. You want to start a business but have no capital? Well, hello, Kickstarter. You want to write a book but can't find a publisher? Hello, Kindle Direct Publishing. You want to be a musician but don't know how to get signed? There's SoundCloud. Everything you need is right here. Perhaps the most automatic excuse I hear is, but I don't have the time. And to that I say, the hell you do! There are 168 hours in each week. We work for 40 of them. So 128 hours left. Sleep for 8 hours a night? Fine. That leaves you with a solid 72 hours. That's 3 whole days. What are you doing in them? Video games, Facebook, TV? Those things really make you happy now, don't they? Scratch out the words, I don't have time, and say what you really mean. Because when you say those words, I don't have time, what you're really saying is, it's not a priority. Working out, self-education, showing your sweetheart how much you love them, how do those measure up on the list of priorities? When you say, I don't have time to work out, what you're really saying is, my health and fitness are not priorities. Because if they were, you'd make time. When you say, I don't have time to read that book, what you're really saying is, gaining knowledge and growing is not a priority. Or when you say, I don't have time to write that sweet love note, that's really saying, my relationship is not a priority. I bet she'd love to hear that. Which is harder to bear, the pain of discipline or the pain of regret? This has been The Unfair Edge with Jonah Jones. See more at anunfairedge.com. This audio was made possible by Theme Forest. Web design is both an art and a science. The art is not so easy, and the science isn't very fun. Unless you're a complete dork like me that finds more fun in matching up variables in an algorithm than matchmaking itself. To me, that is matchmaking. 
But even I get annoyed when I run into design and programming problems with websites. So how do we get past the difficult parts of making a website without breaking the bank? Well, for that, there's ThemeForce. It doesn't matter at all what kind of website you're making. It can be WordPress, HTML, Joomla, Tumblr, Magento, Drupal, Concrete5, Zencart, Shopify. Even if you just want the template files as Photoshop documents so you can further customize them, they have them. We're talking full-site templates and themes, customizable and responsive, that work on all browsers and devices starting at $30 and never going higher than $99. You can't find a better deal anywhere else. They also offer services such as WordPress customization and installation from $50 and WordPress plugin development from $150. Check them out at an unfairedge.com slash forest.